Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, wherever you may reside in the world. Well, I will say that we are getting uh, closer and closer towards wrapping up uh, Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. And in this uh, podcast segment, we are going to, um, to discuss... Um, the actual battle of Guilford Courthouse. But prior to discussing the actual battle of Guilford Courthouse, we will um, be learning about other uh, last-minute um, movements. What do I mean by movements? Well, last-minute uh, movements on both ends. That is, um, the Americans and the British sides, and how they go about um, <clears throat> positioning their troops into what would be an eventual battle, and where uh, troops are located, whom got to Virginia first over the other. You know, I know maybe on one hand I'm giving some stuff away, but I don't think it's a whole lot that I'm giving away. However, we should keep in mind that um, troops don't stay in one position all the time. It's fair to say that this uh, race to the Dan has been one that has uh, seen constant uh, twists and turns. But even constant twists and turns alone make for a better story because of the um, suspense. We want to be on um, we want to be on edge. On one hand, being on edge is not a good thing, but in this case, being on edge, meaning that uh, we don't know what to expect from one day after the other. But it is fair to say that this race to the Dan has been one of many twists and turns. And here the British, being the mightiest empire in the world, have failed to live up to their expectations. To me, it would be fair to say, and I'll probably say it again at some point in this segment, but I'll say it now, Cornwallis, or rather I should say General Lord Charles Cornwallis, has really underestimated the people of the southern colonies. He truly believed that all of those uh, individuals in the southern co living in the southern colonies, most notably the Carolinas, would be willing to take up arms with the crown and subdue any um, opposition that still remained out there. Subdue it to the point where it would just go away like a... Um, like a candle being extinguished. Well, you know, the problem is, is that the British Empire being this um, big elephant, no matter where the elephant goes, the elephant's going to encounter the unexpected. The elephant can encounter a swarm of mosquitoes in one direction, but the mosquitoes come from all other uh, corners, making it unbearable for the elephant to know where to, to chart his or her course. In this case, the elephant would probably be referring to um, as a as a male because of his uh, assertiveness, his uh, dominance, authority. Well, after all, the American Revolution, who is who rules England? Not a queen, but a king. Not that a queen is a bad thing, but it just so happens that we've got King George III ruling. So we have this um, mighty empire that's the equivalent of an elephant who is uh, asserting his dominance, but yet everywhere the elephant goes, not just in the Carolinas, but it has uh, proven to be this way 
throughout the uh, course of this seven-year war that no matter where the elephant has gone, the elephant has not been able to finish the job. Just when the elephant does have the edge, there's always going to be a, a swarm of mosquitoes nearby to catch it off guard to where it will uh, steer off course. Well, if I keep on talking like this, there may not be the need to ha even have a podcast. So let's fasten our seatbelts and let's get the show on the road. Our leadoff question for this segment is the following. What final preparations had been made come the morning of February 10th, 1781, within the primary ranks or the inner circle of the Continental Army. What final preparations do you all think had been made? Well, the answer is the following. Uh, General Nathaniel Green had issued, or rather I should say formally issued, that the retreat going forward from North Carolina to Virginia go into effect with the consent or approval from his elite inner circle of officers. You know, too often when we think of retreat, we think of an army that's in trouble. We think of a retreat as an army that um, had a grand plan and all of a sudden it's um, ballooned, meaning it's just gone haywire to the point where um, leadership has crumbled, the soldiers don't know what to do, so now they're throwing down their weapons, running for their lives, or they aren't throwing down their weapons, but they're just going... Um, into a safety area, but they're running at their own will without any leadership guiding them on how to go about properly retreating so that they won't be cut down by the enemy. But we have to keep in mind that this retreat that Nathaniel Green has issued is not going to be anything based upon what we often uh, see and um, hear about in terms of um, the more often common blunders when um, strategical uh, plans go astray. So Nathaniel Green has formally issued a retreat, and by going into Virginia, what do you think he, he would want to have happen? I'll mention it again, but, I'll, but just think about it now, folks. Nathaniel Green wants to preserve as much of his army as there is possible. This is where his uh, strategical thinking comes into play, and this is where um, a bold uh, chess maneuver strike will be um, of significant relevance. General Green's uh, retreat strategy, or rather I should say game plan, had systems in place <clears throat> where cavalry and infantry units would go about accompanying one another for safety, or rather I should say protective measures, per their commander's orders. Green's purpose uh, during the midst of the, of the retreat was to have the enemy uh, to where they became uh, spent prior to upon arriving to destination. So there you have it, folks. I mean, it, this isn't the grand slam or what we call a slam dunk here, but the re we can say that another reason for why this retreat is going to be done is because he wants um, he wants to throw Cornwallis's uh, forces into chaos. He wants to keep them on the run, on the move, to the point where, yes, Green and his men will be one step ahead, but it will be a constant um, 
game of um, movement, rapid movement on the Continental Army's end to where, you know, the British may spot them from a distance per uh, scouts and their intelligence findings, but within a few hours, all that can change. With um, dark, with darkness rather, that's a great opportunity for uh, one side to leave the current post and then go elsewhere. And for General Green, um, he was known to uh, conduct retreats in the middle of the night. Sometimes your best asset is to leave at nighttime versus broad daylight when you would be more vulnerable. I never served in the military, but uh, one of the things I've be I have um, enabled myself to appreciate more with the American Revolutionary War is is the way. Uh, Commanders came up with uh, unique um, strategies when when uh, leaders had to be very unique in the darkest of moments. But then again, it's fair to say that um, that that was going on. It had to have gone on. Otherwise, I don't know how we would have defeated the British. But we do often forget just uh, how much planning went into the battles. And at the same time, thank heavens, our generals and our high-ranking officers did have time on their sides to learn from uh, mistakes even in the war's early um, onset, and most notably in the New York uh, debacle, where many began to wonder if, if the cause itself was even worth fighting for. Of course, that uh, same question arose. It arose often. It might be fair to say that after the debacle it, in Camden, South Carolina, many began to wonder, hey, is this cause still worth fighting for? So this uh, war has been one of many ups and downs, but somehow the flames for independence keep going um, strong and alive as the war enters its seventh year. General Green put the main body of his army into play uh, by sending them along a road to a place called Boyd's Ferry. But he also went about sending a party whose purpose was to collect boats along the Dan River. I know what many of you are thinking, how in the world can uh, people collect boats during this time? Well, folks, uh, boats have been around since the beginning of time. Of course, we... We didn't have any uh, such things as uh, motorboats um, back in the 18th century, but the boats that it would be fair to say that were around in the 18th century that were being collected were, um, they could have been like, you know, canoes. I mean, you know, the Indians used canoes, but many of these boats would have been almost on like the equivalent of what's called a Durham boat, which were widely used in the uh, transporting of um, of uh, provisions and uh, soldiers, um, most notably the uh, Marbleheaders, or the men from Marblehead, Massachusetts, um, who were known as the Indispensables. Yes, uh, there was a book written about that group of uh, men uh, whose uh, commander was uh, John Glover, they uh, were responsible for transporting those whom were unable to, um, those whom, say, lacked the manpower to be able to row um, boats uh, across the Delaware River um, when uh, Washington's men 
uh, made the ultimate sacrifice by crossing the Delaware River on uh, Christmas night of 1776 that uh, kept uh, the cause for independence alive uh, via, the, via the surprise attack on the Hessian uh, garrison at Trenton. So, yes, boats are around, and most likely there would have been, you know, Durham boats or boats that resembled uh, modern-day canoes. So, yes, for General Green, he wants, um, he has sent a party whose purpose is to collect boats along the Dan River, where engineer Thaddeus Kajusko would go about overseeing the fortification be constructed at Boyd's Ferry to protect the boats and offer safe passage cover for the Continental Army as a whole. So we've got to keep in mind that it's one thing to um, to collect boats, but you've got to find a means to protect those boats. Because if you leave them out in the open, who's going to get their hands on them if they're smart enough to acquire them? The enemy, a.k.a. the British. Where were uh, Cornwallis's troop forces uh, positioned in relation to where General Greene's forces had stood around the confines of Guilford Courthouse? Well, General Cornwallis's troops were stationed around Salem. And of course, when we think of Salem, we should think of uh, what is now Winston-Salem. But in 1781, there was no Winston-Salem. It was just called uh, Salem. Uh, Salem was about 25 miles away, and on the evening of February 10th, Cornwallis um, and his men moved upon the outskirts of Salem where he sought to split the army into two separate groups. You know, maybe this is something he should have done sooner, but he's thinking now that if he splits the army into two groups, he might be able to get a um, not just a step ahead of Green, but perhaps a better opportunity of catching Green and his forces off guard to where they might be able to force the uh, greater army as a whole to uh, surrender without even um, putting up a fight. Well, let's just see what happens. Hang tight here for just a moment, folks. I'm sure you all are probably wondering, why do we need to hang tight? Well, I'd take a sip of uh, some good... Um, good old-fashioned uh, bread pudding tea from Colonial Williamsburg. If you go to Merchant Square, go to uh, Tea and Spice Company, and uh, you can get you can find a, a whole unique assortment of uh, spices, and you can also find a whole unique assortment of teas. And as I said once before, I'd say it again, for those of you who were with me when we did American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution by Harlow Giles Unger, Tea was frowned upon, given that Parliament uh, had placed a tax on tea. And, of course, over a dozen patriots disguised as Mohawk Indians, what did they do, folks? They dumped over just over 340 chests of tea into the Boston Harbor in December of 1773. But, of course, they escorted the um, customs officials off their, their ships, the Dartmouth, the Eleanor, and the Beaver, peacefully, but, of course, it is hard to believe at one time uh, drinking tea might have been frowned upon um, by the greater public. But now we know that uh, great drinking tea does have its benefits. And the best part is that we don't have to resort to dumping chests of tea into the water as a means of uh, unnecessary protest. Well, Hillsboro, North Carolina, 
uh, we've mentioned a great deal about Hillsborough, but at one time uh, that would, would have been considered the capital of North Carolina's uh, Patriot administration. Well, think about it. You know, I think it'd be fair to say that all of the colonies would have had to have had some form of uh, administrative um, location, uh, given that loyalties are unpredictable, loyalties are uncertain, but there needs to be some kind of uh, network in place where if you're on one side, you know that you can go to that particular location as a means of support. So Hillsboro, North Carolina is the capital of North Carolina's Patriot Administration. It's also the home to continental provisions. Now, on the other hand, I thought earlier that the majority of the provisions have been sent elsewhere. Well, some provisions were left behind, but it was um, seen as a means of uh, luring Cornwallis's troops into traps. Okay, if you're on, on the British side, all of a sudden you see some provisions, you might be led to think that other provisions are nearby. But it also could mean that by luring this trap that they're going to delay Cornwallis's troops and their movement being the intended destination of Guilford Courthouse would be one that would take longer. You know, it's one thing to be a step ahead of the enemy, but wouldn't it be fair to say you would want to lure some traps? Another, you know, from a previous podcast, we had learned that um, General Henry um, or General Daniel Morgan, pardon me, had left um, a fire um, ablaze, but it was a campfire and food some food provisions were left behind. The British retired under uh, Tarleton's command, Bannistry Tarleton. So what do they do? Okay, they see the food, they see a fire over a uh, kettle. Why not, you know, get your troops uh, rested? But, you know, it's one thing to have your troops rested, but hey, when you set up a trap like that, the longer it's going to take the enemy to regroup and uh, get ready to move uh, forward uh, to where they need to go next. So these uh, traps are paying off uh, long term. Colonel Otho Holland Williams, on the Patriot side, uh, considered a surprise attack on Cornwallis's troop forces between February 10th and 11th, given the enemy had moved uh, six miles east of Salem. But Williams's troops were in no condition to fight, given their current status of fatigue levels. And I would think it'd be fair to say by early 1781, and as we get closer and closer to what lies ahead, to what will lie ahead, rather, I should say, at Guilford Courthouse, that many troops are wearing down. We talked about it from the previous podcast, but it's just not one of those things that can be ignored. Think about it, folks. We don't have Gatorade to drink. We don't have uh, Powerade. We don't have um, energy drinks. You know, provisions are low, so we've got to ask ourselves, how much longer can we keep fighting? There's got to be something we can do that will strike a blow uh, to Cornwallis. I mean, we've already done several things to be a step ahead of Cornwallis and Tarleton, but we've got to do something else down here that if it's not the grandest of missions, it's got to be enough of something to where um, even if Cornwallis's forces were to win, it would not be the, the victory they're looking for. 
Just because you win sometimes, it doesn't mean you have every reason to celebrate. Sometimes even victories themselves can come at a very, very bad price. And I will share more with you all about that uh, towards the latter part of the podcast. Whom did uh, Colonel Williams send on a mission into the woods come February 11th? He sent Cavalry Commander Henry Lee, whom sought to halt the progress of current British troop, troop movement under Cornwallis's command. The evening of February 11th saw the Continental Cavalry under Henry Lee under Henry Lee's watch take charge to where many British soldiers got killed and wounded as well as taking down 18 British dragoons. You know, remember folks, the dragoons were the ones who uh, rode on horseback but also served as a dual served in a dual role, uh, not only riding on horseback, but by getting off on horse to be able to fight as a regular infantry um, fighter. Despite the success under um, American cavalry um, leadership of uh, Henry Lee, his troops from within um, his own units lost their focus. So, you know, it's so easy to think that the British are the ones losing their focus. Even the Continentals are losing their focus as well. And the longer this conflict is going on, I could see how it's just very, very easy to lose your focus because you're under this assumption that all you just need is one quick strike and that's it. But that's not the way that um, war goes, Um but especially in this greater conflict with the mother country. Had Patriot and British forces, or rather I should say had Patriot and British troop forces, endured physical problems within early days towards the march within and past Guilford Courthouse? What do you all think? I mean, we've learned a lot of, um, a lot of stuff in the, uh, lately with... Um, with a lot of hardships on both ends. If anybody said no, I think that would be just very, very strange, but the answer is yes. General Green himself uh, noted that he had not slept more than four hours since first having left Guilford Courthouse. Wow, talk about sleep deprivation right there. But if that's hard enough, try being on the British Army side. The British Army got hindered by transporting 100 American prisoners whom were captured at Torrance's Tavern to accompanying camp followers, a.k.a. civilians, who had nowhere else to go for seeking shelter. And think about this, folks. Both the Americans and the British um, troop forces are, um, are catering to civilians, not only just for loyalty purposes, but they're catering. They're having to cater to these civilians because they've got nowhere else to go. Think about it. You, you know, if your house burnt down, the enemy burnt your house down, it's not like you could just call up and say, uh, State Farm, how much, how much am I going to be covered for my um, home loss, my home losses, rather. Uh, I, I'd like to stay at this um, lodging place for X number of months until I can get back on my two feet. So think about it, folks. If your home is gone and, you're, and, you're, and you've lost everything on your property, the best place you can be is, um, is being that of a camp follower 
depending on where your loyalties stand or just in general, because uh, who's to say that you will have somewhere else to go and have a roof to um, live under? Scary times, to say the least. Were uh, British forces willing to go as far as attacking General Green from behind, as well as cutting off his forces via cavalry attack? I would think that he would, that British forces would be willing to do this, but it turns out they weren't. Cornwallis firmly believed that he could do something else. He firmly believed that he could trap General Green's forces against the confines of the Dan River. Well, that's a, that's a great idea, but here's the problem. Does Cornwallis have enough sufficient intelligence to where he could coordinate a t an attack and keep uh, Green's forces along the confines of the Dan River to where crossing the river could even be done. No, Cornwallis does not have um, sufficient um, intelligence considering, for one, where he was stationed. Secondly, his forces now have no other choice in going forward along unfamiliar roads. So if you don't have the intelligence to coordinate uh, in an attack, then you're going to be left... Um, really with very, very few to no options. And therefore, you pretty much have to go straight on where, based upon where you've already started and where you're halfway through. Uh, what concern did Patriot Colonel Otho Holland Williams have per a letter he wrote to General Green on February 13th of 1781? The concerns addressed... Um, pertained to where Nathaniel Green was in proximity from ferry boat crossing station to the enemy's newest positioning point at the time letter was being written and how it had potential to change within a short time span period. So, you know, this whole game of being one step ahead in the Carolinas is constant. You don't get a three-day break from it, and it's also going to mean having to correspond by letters because, you know, not all the officers and the regiments are in the same territory. You know, we remember folks at Calpens, Nathaniel Green wasn't there. He was about 100 miles east of Calpens. He, it was a bold move to do that, but he did the right thing because he felt that if his own forces were there, that they could have uh, risked uh, being... Um, negatively impacted you didn't want to have the entire army there but you wanted to have enough of the army there that if in the event there was a setback the other army uh, the other part of the army being 100 miles east of Calpens would still be able to uh, carry on a greater mission Williams's letter to General Green also included the state of his own personal troop forces whom were facing fatigue along with seeing their horses suffer physically. Um, Williams also advised in a letter that some of his own men began deserting him. Now, why are these men deserting um, an officer? Do they have grudges against the officer? Do they hate the guy? Well, if I'm not mistaken, what is something that militia forces have in common, or tend to have in common to do? And it irks high-ranking officers. It irks 
One officer in particular being General George Washington, although he's not in the Carolinas, but if there was one thing that George Washington despised most about militiamen was that they always came and went as they pleased. They always um, did things on their time, or rather on their terms. He always felt militiamen had this I, me, myself mentality. But we have learned that at Calpens and at other engagements in the Carolinas, that I, me, myself mentality was not a permanent fixture. But I think a lot of it would be fair to say because of the new military leadership that evolved um, after the Camden debacle. So yes, it is hard to believe that um, some of uh, Colonel Williams's men began deserting him, but I think a lot of it has to do with fatigue. A lot of it has to do with um, with uh, commitment. Not and This is not a long-term, but a short-term commitment where they also know that they need to be going back to their homes and protecting their um, families and looking after their livestock and uh, farms in general. February 14, 1781, General Green wrote Colonel Williams more than once, telling him to prepare for the worst. Wow, prepare for the worst. wonder what this could mean. Well, there is good news to report. General Green advised that advised to Colonel Williams that the majority of the wagons and troops had crossed the Dan River on the evening of February 14th. Why is this good, folks? At some point, a retreat has to end. Retreats themselves don't last forever. But the good news to report is that the retreat in the eyes of Nathaniel Green has come to an end. It doesn't mean, however, that just because the retreat has come to an end, that this uh, greater uh, conflict in the Carolinas, most notably now in North Carolina, will come to a 100% uh, complete end. It just means now that Nathaniel Green knows where to end the retreat, but he's also going to um, he's going to. Um, keep this uh, game going because he knows that Cornwallis is somewhere not far by. But for Nathaniel Green, he knows that he's got to stay on the offensive and do whatever is necessary to outfox Cornwallis. Because if not, one mistake alone in this Continental Army and the cause for independence could be decimated altogether. So what exactly did General Cornwallis's army Achieve come mid-February 1781. What do you all think Cornwallis's army achieved? I, I know it sounds hard to believe to think, here's this mighty, em mighty empire, mighty militaristic empire, and they haven't been able to put down their subjects or their the, the subjects in rebellion whom they um, ruled over. And here it is, seventh year of this war, and they haven't been able to... Um, haven't been able to put a decisive blow. And all of a sudden, now we're thinking to ourselves, what in the world could they have achieved come mid-February of 1781? Well, it turns out that uh, the army under General Lord Charles Cornwallis had finally driven out General Green's Continental Army from the Carolinas. Well, you know, the, the British 
feel now that they can celebrate, largely in part because Charleston, South Carolina, and would, would all of you agree that Charleston, South Carolina was the key southern city? Of course, when we think of the southern colonies, we have to be reminded that there was the Upper South and the Lower South. In the Upper South, it's Virginia and North Carolina. The Lower South, it's South Carolina and Georgia. But of all southern cities, is it fair to say that Charleston, South Carolina, was probably the most vital of all southern cities? Yes, considering that it had the largest of all um, ports um, for ships to come in and out of prior to and leading up to the American Revolutionary War uh, for the southern uh, colonies. So yes, Charleston, South Carolina, key southern city, now is in the hands of the British Crown. South Carolina is pretty much now under British military authority. This also includes Georgia and the, what we now know as the territory, well, we think of now as the state of Florida, but then the Florida Territory. In the midst of retreat through North Carolina, General Greene sought to rally the North Carolina militia, but General William Davidson's death impacted the troops so much so to where Greene himself was unable to persuade them in staying and fighting it out. Because of uh, the North Carolina militia's inability to, um, to uh, stay along, General Greene uh, felt there was no other choice but to forego North Carolina. And maybe this isn't a bad idea, folks. After all, Nathaniel Greene has accomplished a lot. He has gotten the British out of South Carolina. He's got them on the move to where they've had to do a lot of things that have become un, um, what we might say he, Green has made British uh, forces do things that are a bit uncharacteristic, like burning the majority of their supply wagons. What kind of leadership does that, folks? To me, that's not good leadership, but I think it's fair to say that we've kind of already established that. But did General Cornwallis believe that he had truly achieved uh, victory in the Carolinas, or rather achieved victory in the Carolinas campaign come mid-February? Yes, Cornwallis had gone as far as issuing an announcement, or a proclamation, I should say, to the people of North Carolina stating that the rebellion, or the greater conflict over several years, now appeared to be at an end. Given Patriot forces were entirely gone from the Carolinas, and because they were gone from the Carolinas, he firmly believed that in, within a short period of time that order would be restored. Order that had previously existed prior to 1775 prior to not only 1775, but the current present state. In other words, Cornwallis was yearning for a return, for a return to uh, what, what he would have called um, proper rule, proper um, respect for, uh, for those above. Proper respect, meaning for those who uh, rule with a tight fist in Parliament, those whom rule uh, with a tight fist on, on the crown, being King George III, 
Cornwallis believed that by having now driven um, the Patriot forces out of the Carolinas altogether, and now that they are probably going into Virginia, he has this grand belief that perhaps the Carolinas and Georgia will resubmit their allegiance to the crown, and that over time, other dominoes from Virginia on up north will do the same thing to where Britain will return to her glory days of ruling over um, a vast uh, network of colonies 3,000 miles across the ocean in uh, North America. Wishful thinking, but uh, Cornwallis will eventually come to realize that, um, that whatever he's envisioning that's so grand at this moment will not be a long-term reality. Although the Continental Army had been pushed out from the Carolinas, the objective was still achieved. How so? General Greene's forces, folks, are still intact. That, to me, is the biggest victory right there. It's one thing to, to drive out the opposition, but if the opposition gets driven out and their forces are all still intact, that means they can still, they can still do just about anything. Well, General Greene's forces are still intact despite being cold, wet, hungry, tiresome from marching, but yet escaped Cornwallis and would live to see and fight another day somewhere in the near foreseeable future. Despite the issues with militia coming and going, General Greene knew they would return under better circumstances. So even General Greene has seen ups and downs of militiamen coming and going as they wish, but he knows that it won't be long until they do come back and are ready to fight. And when they are ready to fight, they will be better um, prepared. How do I say it? They'll be somewhat better prepared, but they'll be better, uh, they'll be better off um, physically and perhaps emotionally. Remember, even if you are a survivor of this war, there are still scars. I think it's fair to say that all wars produce scars. Not just physical, but emotional. And those scars don't go away overnight. And um, General Green also has um, also can feel good knowing that, yes, that the militia, even though they come and go and that they will return when under better circumstances, General Green feels very confident about the success of the supply wagons um, not being um, taken by enemy uh, by an enemy surprise attack. This, all the supply wagons were transported safely into Virginia, as well as um, having established post facilities for storing other essential provisions. And even better for General Green is that British prisoners are still in the hands of his army that will be necessary for an eventual prisoner exchange. I tell you, Nathaniel Green knows how to do his homework. And he is a very, very well-organized man. You would want a well-organized um, individual to lead an army, but it's one thing to be well-organized, 
but it's also important to be on the offensive and knowing when it's um, time to move, when it's time to stay and put, but also have every um, ounce of uh, backup strategies in place because without backup strategies, without without anything that we consider to be backup, can put you and your greater uh, men in some form of harm's way. It might be fair to say that Nathaniel Green could be like the equivalent of a secret service agent. A secret service agent who would be the head of the President of the United States' um, inner circle detail team. That's, to me, what Nathaniel Green uh, can be best described as. A man whom is uh, very, very um, astute with details and astute with uh, just doing things um, as uh, accurate as possible. What had become the biggest setback that plagued that plagued the British in their overall pursuit of General Green's army? What do you all think was the biggest setback? The chase alone led to Britain staying off course from accessing supplies. Meaning, listen to this, folks. The meaning the nearest supply station lied 240 miles south in Camden, South Carolina. So think about it, folks. They were uh, forced to go, they were forced to abandon their, um, their central post, being that of Camden, South Carolina, 240 miles south. And so it didn't help it didn't help their um, situation at all because um, January. it just didn't help them out at all con in, in considering that even in January 1781, British supply wagons were burned, meaning that they had nothing to fall back onto. So accessing supplies is one thing, but when you were 240 miles away from your closest um, hub for acquiring supplies... It's pretty much um, a doomsday uh, scenario for long-term survival. Now, once in Virginia, General Green remained on the offensive where he sought out troops, militia, and supplies, but also did so by engaging in the offensive in North Carolina. So he was doing um, offensive um, measures in both North Carolina and Virginia, given his forces were stationed along the Virginia-North Carolina line. Halifax. There is a county in Virginia uh, that's right on the Virginia-North Carolina line called Halifax County. It's home to a place called South Boston. You can get to, depending on where you live, uh, you can get to Halifax County. Um, I know my grandparents lived in uh, Lynchburg, where my dad was from. So long story short, if you wanted to get from Lynchburg to South Boston, you could go um, 460, which meets up with uh, 360, and then go uh, 501. Another way uh, to get to South Boston is going uh, US 58, uh, if, if you live in Virginia. But yes, yeah, South Boston is right on the Virginia-North Carolina line, uh, given that it's in uh, Halifax County. But in Halifax, uh, General Green assigned Army Engineer Thaddeus Kajusko 
including 345 Maryland and Delaware Continentals in going about fortifying Halifax should in the event uh, Cornwallis's forces uh, tried to make their way into um, a, a place like Halifax being on the Virginia-North Carolina line that would have um, been... Um, that would have been uh, successful for Cornwallis, but disastrous for Green. Hillsborough, North Carolina, uh, in Hillsborough, North Carolina, rather, I should say, Cornwallis went about gathering loyalist recruits. He did have some success, but it was not long-term. Long-term success was not fulfilled given on February 22, 1781, Cornwallis learned that General Greene's forces had re-entered the Dan River along the North Carolina state along the Virginia North Carolina state line. While in Virginia, General Greene got reacquainted with General Edward Stevens and 600 Virginia riflemen, including being joined by multiple regiments of North Carolina and Virginia militia. Did you hear that folks? The militia, they have um, made their way back. General Greene was right. They would come back at the right time, and now all of a sudden they are. They're not giving up. So North Carolina and Virginia militia have uh, rejoined the cause. Now, where did uh, Greene's militia and volunteer infantry forces stand number-wise going into mid-March of 1781? I'll give you a number. It was between twenty-five and 3,000. The answer is 2,600. Nathaniel Green has 2,600 strong in terms of militia and volunteer infantry forces. But even better was the establishment of two new continental regiments originating from Virginia. When it was all said and done by mid-March, Nathaniel Green had 4,400 troops. This is pretty doggone impressive, folks, to say the least. As both armies uh, marched their way to Guilford Courthouse around mid-March, Neither side could claim immunity. Well, when you're immune from something, what does that mean? That nothing could go wrong, that you're going to be safe. But fighting, when it comes to fighting a war, there is no such thing as immunity. You can, be, you can find all the protection there is possible, but it doesn't mean that you are still going to be vulnerable to something else. So... As both armies marched their way to Guilford Courthouse around mid-March, neither side could claim immunity, most notably from shortages of food supply. But the majority of General Greene's militia, okay, they've come back. But here's the thing, folks. They're only enlisted for roughly about six weeks. And who's to say that he can get any of them to stay even after a six-week period of enlistment is over? On the other hand, General Lord Charles Cornwallis experienced further decline in Loyalist turnout and overall support. So it is fair to say that even by mid-March, both sides know that they are entering a situation that's going to make or break, or um, you know, one side might you know lose, but it's all going to be based upon uh, the numbers. It's all going to be based upon uh, what uh, follows in the aftermath of this impending battle. Well, here we go. What happened on March 15, 1781? British and American armies confronted one another on the fields and forests around Guilford Courthouse. Like at Cowpens, General Nathaniel Green placed a majority of militia up front, or the front of the line, 
where they would fire twice, just like what happened at Calpens, and then fall back. But, I hate to admit this, folks, Guilford Courthouse was no Calpens. How so? General Green's lines were stretched out much further compared to what General Morgan uh, contended with at Calpens, meaning that for General Green, the, given that the lines were so stretched out, Green himself could not effectively command from his post behind the main continental line. So when you have a broader stretch of territory to cover, that even means that Green himself could be vulnerable to enemy fire. So Green's continental forces, however, did hold their ground. They held their ground rather firmly, whereas militia troops retreated, but it wasn't uh, the most coordinated of retreats. It wasn't a neglected retreat. It wasn't a dangerous one, but it was a retreat that um, had a lot of twists and turns, a little bit of disarray. Given that the British regulars were making their approach known, and of course, usually when militiamen saw British regulars, especially if their bayonets were fixed, and I don't know if this was the case at Guilford or not, but militiamen did run. It could be that maybe they were just exhausted. Well, how about three hours of fighting? Yeah, three hours of fighting can do you in. So after three hours of fighting, General Green and his forces left the field. Although Cornwallis finally had defeated Green in North Carolina, did he have a lot of reasons to celebrate the victory? You know, the British won at Guilford Courthouse, which I found hard to believe given how much... Um, how much of a roller coaster Cornwallis's, Cornwallis and his forces had uh, undergone, but they really were not. They really had no means to be able to celebrate this victory because the victory alone came at a high cost. Ninety-three British soldiers were dead. How many British soldiers do you all think were wounded? I'll give you a number. It's between uh, three hundred and four hundred and fifty. The answer is 439. 439 British soldiers were wounded. That means, folks, that General Cornwallis lost nearly a quarter, a.k.a. one-fourth of his army, which included 29 British and Hessian officers killed or wounded. Nathaniel Green, on the other hand, had 78 men dead, with 183 wounded. But having combined militia and Continental Army regulars together in combat action had proven successful considering just how far things had come since December, or rather I should say early December 1780, when General Green arrived into North Carolina and saw firsthand that what was left of, of the Continental Army truly had been scary considering that in early December of 1780, the army was down to uh, three days left of uh, central provisions. So is it fair to say that by mid-March of 1781 that the Continental Army had come a long, long way in the south since the time Nathaniel Green first arrived? Absolutely. The British victory at Guilford Courthouse has often been described by many historians as a 
Pyrrhic victory. Why a Pyrrhic victory? Even members of parliament viewed this uh, battle as a Pyrrhic victory. What it means, folks, is that it's an engagement or a battle where one side won, being that of the British in this case, but the battle came at a great cost. Cornwallis's troops are already exhausted, but yet being forced to go into battle with so many unknowns to follow afterwards, more men on the battlefield resulting in a greater number of losses, or I should say woundings, given that nearly uh, close to 450 men were wounded, replacements alone became obsolete, meaning that they just weren't going to be replaced overnight. And think about it too, Cornwallis can't, was unable to uh, recruit a large number of um, troops from within North Carolina to join his side. So for General Cornwallis, he's he used all of his forces, but he didn't stop to conserve a portion whom could be spared in fighting another day. The only viable option following this costly victory at Guilford Courthouse was retreating north to Virginia. So whenever you hear of a Pyrrhic victory, how about a costly victory? You paid a bad price. You sent your men out into um, open battle. Yes, you may have had more men. Yes, you may have had the advantages, but yet you lost more men, and yet they still took the, um, took the stronghold. Another good example during the American Revolution of a Pyrrhic victory was at Bunker Hill. Uh, remember the British uh, launched three assaults up the hill? They were mowed down on the uh, first two um, assaults. Uh, the American forces were told under the provisional commander of uh, Dr. Joseph Warren, as right as the enemy gets within 50 yards, you fire at them. You fire low and you fire at their knees. In other words, by taking them out, firing at their knees and taking the enemy out, the soldiers can't get back up and fight. Once they've been shot in the knee, it's, it's game over for them. And, of course, had uh, the Continental Army not run out of uh, gunpowder or ammunition, they would have been able to have um, quashed this third assault. But the British won the battle, largely in part because, yes, uh, the, the Americans had ran, run out of ammunition at Bunker Hill, but the victory came at a pirate cost. Uh, General Thomas Gage's forces were, he lost about a quarter of his uh, forces, 25%. Nearly 1,100 British soldiers were killed or wounded at Bunker Hill back in, um, eight, in, back in June of 1775. So there's a little bit of a similarity to that one compared to um, what happened at Guilford Courthouse. General Green might not have emerged as the victor in many of engagements during the Carolina campaign, but the strategical decision um, that was made regarding retreat movement helped preserve Continental Army's greater numbers long-term, which meant the longer the campaign lasted down south, the more difficult it became for British forces to achieve an all-out victory. And achieving an all-out victory would have meant for the British that the southern colonies would be forced to resubmit their loyalties to England. Well, there you have it, folks. Okay, we saw, we've learned about a battle. 
a battle that actually has been forgotten for by many for some time, but it has been brought back into the lifeline, I would say, for the last 25 years or so, Guilford Courthouse. Too often when we think of the Southern campaign, we often think of, of how it all ended at Yorktown. But what happened in March of 1781 really was, in a sense, a prelude that would lead up to um, what would come in uh, September and October of 1781 at Yorktown. And for those of you who were with me when we discussed uh, Jack Jewett's uh, ride, um, where did Cornwallis go after the Carolinas? He goes to Virginia to make one last stand. Virginia, being the largest of the 13 colonies, has the most to gain, the most to lose. Cornwallis was firmly convinced that if somehow Virginia could be captured, that the rest of the southern colonies would fall, and that with Virginia's capture, that the rest of the colonies to the middle and north would fall, making all 13 colonies subjects of the crown. Well, that didn't happen, but that's what the intent was. Well, thank you for your time as always, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be uh, discussing the epilogue of Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. Wherever you all may reside, uh, stay safe and have a great weekend, and thank you again for being such ardent um, and avid uh, podcast listeners. And continue to get the word out to those whom would like to listen to uh, podcasts on Anchor or just podcasts in general. It's well worth the time. Take care.